So I brought two pairs of glasses up. One pair are mine, okay? One pair are Becky's. I'm not saying who copied who, but somebody's a trendsetter and somebody's a copier. Um, but uh, we, uh, well, sometimes we, we share a car, very occasionally we share a car, and Becky, twice a year I'll let Becky drive mine. And, and she left one day her glasses in my car, but because they looked like mine, I put them on. And as I'm driving along, I'm thinking, goodness me, my eyes have got really bad. Because, and, and things are blurry and, and everything's all over the place. And I'm beginning to worry because when you, when you reach a certain age in life, you do know that things start to go downhill a little bit. Um, and, 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 you know, being on the, the, the other side of 40, you know that things are going to start to deteriorate. And I began to think, goodness, things are really not good here. And then I realized... I put on Becky's glasses, and she is long-sighted, and I am short-sighted. And when I put my own back on, everything came back into focus. And the reason I say that is that we all have a lens through which we see life. We all have a lens through which we interpret reality. Not a physical lens like that, but a mental lens made up of our experiences, our background, um, our, our thinking about God, just all the stuff that's happened to us. And we view life through a lens, we, life isn't seen so much as what happens there as what happens in here. It's not what happens to us, it's what happens in us. And that's what we've seen in the book of Revelation again and again, that we need to view life, we need to view the world, we need to view reality, the stuff that's going on around us, the stuff we watch in the news, the stuff we read in the newspapers, the stuff that is bringing everybody down at the minute, the stuff that where everyone seems to be in chaos and everything seems a mess, we need to view it through the right lens. And that is the lens of this, that God is on the throne. He is sovereign, he rules and reigns and everything is under control. That he has a timetable, that he has a plan, that nothing is actually out of control, but that he has absolute control and he is working according to his purpose and plans. I read a story recently which I find interesting about a guy called Bruce Bridgman. He uh, it was 67 years old neuroscientist who all his life had suffered from a condition called stereo blindness. I'd never heard of that before. Stereo blindness. Apparently it affects about 5 to 10 percent of the population, but basically it means you have no perception of depth. Everything is 2D. Everything is flat, and so you have no perception of of depth or or substance. And five years ago, he went to the cinema to see the movie Hugo. It was a 3D 3D movie, and so they gave him special glasses, you know, those special glasses for 3D movies. And he said, as soon as the movie started, it was incredible. It was like a whole new dimension opened up for him. The characters jumped out of the screen, but it turned out that it wasn't just movie magic because the moment Bruce stepped out of the cinema without his 3D glasses on, he still saw everything in three dimensions. His brain had been reprogrammed during the course of the movie to see life in a whole new dimension and he never saw life the same way again and that's 
what we've been learning through the book of Revelation. That John, this elderly apostle who's been exiled to the island of Patmos, he has this vision, this revelation of God. And he is under pressure. His people that he pastors are under persecution. And as he gets this revelation, this unveiling, the curtain is pulled back and he sees what's really going on. He understands that there's more to life than meets the eye. That's a phrase I've used every week in this series. There is more to your life than meets the eye. That there are spiritual forces at work. That there are angels and demons. That there are things going on behind a spiritual reality which overlaps and intersects with our world that causes things to happen the way they are. In the first century, they were being told that you have to say this, Caesar is Lord. And the Christians said, look, we can honor Caesar, we can pray for Caesar, but we cannot worship Caesar because we have only one Lord and his name is Jesus. And they were persecuted. They faced violence, economic sanctions, ridicule, intimidation, and even death. And so a bit like Bruce Bridgman, after John sees these visions This revelation of Jesus, he could never look at life the same way again. He saw suffering differently. He saw pain differently. He saw persecution differently. He saw obedience and faithfulness to Jesus differently. He realized that this was all part of this cosmic battle that as God's kingdom breaks in, it's resisted by the kingdoms of this world controlled by the devil and there will be pressure, there will be a squeezing, there will be this tension in the middle and if you're a follower of Christ, you're likely to be caught up in the middle of it so don't be surprised. And we're going to continue to see that as we look at the next Well, chapter today, I was going to say chapters 12 and 13, chapter 12 anyway. And if you think all the symbolism and imagery has been confusing up until now, you ain't seen nothing yet. But as always, we try to interpret what it meant for the people in the first century that this book was originally written to, as they stood and read it in their seven churches, and what it means for us in the 21st century here in Craig Alvin. So let's start (coughs) in Revelation chapter 12 and read verses 1 to four. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of this woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. If this was a dramatization on TV, it would be after the watershed. It would be after 9 p.m. And my wife wouldn't watch it because she has nightmares easily. It is like a cross between Harry Potter on steroids and Lord of the Rings mixed together. It's a bit crazy. But we need to remember what we said before, that this is imagery. And images are trying to convey a truth greater than the pictures themselves. That, that what John sees in this vision is not what happened next, it's what he sees next. 
Remember the whole thing about changing channels that we kept talking about? That, that we keep seeing the same thing over and over again, the tribulation from different vantage points. It's a bit like if you were watching football on BBC One and then you go to ITV2 plus one and watch the same match from a different angle. You're seeing two different pictures of the same match, but you're going back to the start again. And that's what we're seeing here. So, but there's a movie that I saw years ago, Vantage Point, where the U.S. president, there's an assassination attempt. And the rest of the movie is eight different characters all explaining what they saw from their vantage point. And every time a new character comes, it literally is eight characters, one after the other, and they keep going back to the beginning and giving additional details from their vantage point. And that's kind of what we have here. We keep going back and getting more details of what's really going on behind the scenes. And so it's like rewind, play, fast forward, play. And so that's why it can become a little confusing. But let's get into it. We read about this woman. A woman who is pregnant and about to give birth. Then she gives birth to a male child. Who might this child be? The answer is always Jesus. <laughs> it's the best way to go in church. If you try Jesus, you'll be 98% right. It is a male child. Here's the hint. It is a male child who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. This is a messianic prophecy in, in, in Psalm 2 about the Messiah, about Jesus. He is a shepherd and he doesn't have a, a rod. He has an iron scepter. In other words, he's a strong, powerful shepherd. Jesus is a strong shepherd of his sheep. Who is this woman? Possibly. I have always assumed it was Mary. And it makes sense that it is Mary. And do you notice, what what has she got on her head? A crown of 12 stars. What does that remind you of? The EU flag has 12 stars. Now, I'm not going to get into some whole thing about the EU. Don't worry here. Although Junker could be the Antichrist. Um, But, uh, I'm joking. Um... But actually, I didn't realize this, that the EU flag was actually designed by two very committed Roman Catholics. And that was where they got it from, was Revelation 12, the 12 stars. And what's the color of Mary? Blue. There's a little factoid for you all this morning. Um, and And so that's where, but that, I think that most scholars would say, actually, in a sense, yes, it is Mary. But as you read on, Mary is actually, it is Mary, but she is a symbol of God's faithful people because Mary was one of God's faithful servants. So Mary represents God's faithful people throughout the ages. The Jews in the Old Testament, God's people, the Christians in the New Testament, the new Israel. Because we read this at the end of the chapter, verse 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Now, it wasn't that, you know, that, she, that the dragon went to wage war against Jesus' half-brothers and sisters. It's talking about the rest of the offspring, including the church. Those who keep God's commandments and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. So this woman represents God's people, Israel and the church, who are the new Israel. That's the woman and child. What about the dragon? Verse 9 tells us this. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient snake called the devil or Satan. 
Christians, I have found, fall into two camps when we talk about the devil. There's one camp that really don't believe in the devil. They think it's all superstition and myth. A little bit like the tooth fairy for grown-ups, that we've put that stuff behind us, that we're enlightened people, we're 21st century people, and we really don't believe in the supernatural. And to think of the devil is to really uh, bring us back into a time when people didn't really understand science. And so there's some people in the church who would say the devil is just a figment of our imagination, there's power structures in society, and they don't believe in the devil at all. Then there's other Christians particularly in our types of churches who obsess with the devil. Everything's the devil. We were at a service in another church recently and they got up like Herbie did this morning to start the service and to welcome everyone and they spent the first 10 minutes of the service talking about the devil. We were freaked. We were like, this is not like, when we get up to worship, we talk about Jesus. But they were, they were given too much attention to the devil. And I've seen that. You know, that everything that happens, it's the devil. That you're an ignoramus and working people don't like you. But it's the devil who's persecuting you. When actually, no, you just need to start being a little bit nicer to people. You start casting out the spirit of influenza all around you when you hear somebody sneeze. That everywhere you go, everything's always the devil. The devil made me do it. The devil caused this to happen. And you know what? The devil does cause some things, but not everything is Satan. As I've said sometimes before, Satan can put his feet up because I'm doing his job for him. He doesn't need to exert any power. I'm making a big enough mess on my own. So sometimes, yes, the devil does impact and influence our lives. But don't believe that every single thing that happens in your life is the devil. Sometimes it's just your stupid decisions. Yes. Sometimes you just made a stupid decision. You knew it was wrong. You, you went into it and you, you knew it wasn't right, but you plowed ahead anyway. And it turned out a mess. And that wasn't the devil. It was you. And so, yes, we do believe in the devil and we're going to see that. We're going to see that he's very real, he's very evil and he does have an agenda against God's people. But we do not want our focus to be on the devil as the church. Our focus is on Christ. Our focus is on the King of Kings. The devil is a created being. God is only the uncreated one. Our focus is not on on, on the enemy. Our focus is on our saviour. And so we need to always keep that in place. So Jesus is born. It says the dragon that Satan tried to devour the child as soon as he was born. That's a new one for the nativity play next Sunday, isn't it? You know, we'll get the kids to practice that. We have Mary, Joseph, baby Jesus, a donkey, and then this huge red dragon comes up the aisle. That'll be one for the kids to think about. But think about the birth of Jesus. Matthew 2.16, what happened? Herod was furious. And he gave orders to kill all boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. So as soon as Jesus was born, we are, see, we're getting Christmassy. Satan tried to get rid of him. The dragon tries to destroy him. The devil actually has better theology than most Christians because he understood the significance of who Jesus was. 
We like the little baby in the manger, no crib for a bed, no the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Like how many people have had a newborn baby that hasn't cried? Absolute rubbish. We love the little baby Jesus in the manger, but the, the devil knew that this baby was no ordinary baby. He was the Messiah. He was the King of Kings. And so he needed to take him out while he was small, because if he couldn't take him out while he was small, as he grew, he would become more Dangerous. Look at what we read next. And her child was snatched up to God into his throne. Really shorthand way of saying this. Jesus was raised from the dead and goes to the right hand of the Father. Now, it's really quick, really shorthand, but John already knew this happened. He was a disciple. He had seen it happen. He was there when Jesus ascended in Acts chapter 1. John knows what's happening. Verse 6. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. The woman, that's God's people, fled into the wilderness. In other words, for John and for the church, that's where they were right now. They had to flee persecution. They were in the wilderness. They were in a barren, desert, hard, difficult, pressurized place. But God knows that they're there. Because look at what it says. He had prepared the place for them. There is nowhere that you will go that God hasn't gone before you. There is nowhere that you will go that God hasn't prepared for you. God always goes before his people. When we're under pressure, when we're under persecution, when we're going through pain, God is always ahead of us. He is with us and he knows where we are. And it is not forever. Look, it says 1,260 days Three and a half years. That means just a set amount of time. Not the fullness of time, because the fullness of time in Revelation is always seven. It's just a a set amount of time. In other words, suffering comes to an end. Persecution comes to an end. Pain always comes to an end. Look at what we read next. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient snake called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Okay, a few things I want you to see here. I always assumed that this was a reference to what happened before creation when Satan was one of the angels in heaven and he was cast out for rebellion against God. And that could be true that there was a huge battle in heaven a third of the angels were kicked out we read about that in isaiah 14 it says this about lucifer you said in your heart i will ascend to the heavens i will raise my throne above the stars of god i sit and i will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly and then it says i will ascend above the tops of the clouds i will make myself like the most high Satan was an angel. Some people say he was an archangel in charge of worship who decided he didn't want to worship God. He wanted to be God and therefore he was cast out. Luke 8 or 10, 18, Jesus says this. He says he witnessed it. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. This would seem to be what Revelation is talking about and it could be some scholars say it is. And yet, This passage in Revelation 12 is connected with the resurrection of Jesus and the death of Jesus. And so here's my theory, and it may or may not be right, that when Jesus died on the cross, all of hell was let loose and came against him. 
that as Jesus hung on that cross, all of hell knew what was at stake. And so every demon of hell, all the hordes of darkness were poured out upon Jesus at that cross because they knew if they could keep him in the grave that they had won the victory. That every demon in hell was assigned because this was the crux of human history. This single event would change eternity. If Satan could kill Jesus and keep him dead, he would win. But Satan is no match for God. We don't believe in dualism. Good and evil are not equal. To hear some Christians, you would think, it's God here, the devil here, who knows who's going to win. We'll not place bets just yet because we're not sure. And right now as we look at the world, it seems like Satan's having a field day, so let's just, you know, hedge our bets. No, they are not equal. Jesus, or, or God, is uncreated. Satan is created. In fact, God doesn't even ever fight Satan himself. He just sends an angel. He sends Michael out and says, you go and get him. It would be like... You having a go at me and me going, I'm so scared of you. I'm sending my six-year-old Elijah to take you on. That's kind of what's going on here. That God is not intimidated by Satan. God knows how limited Satan's power is. And so he says, I'm not even going to bother fighting you. Michael, go give him a whooping. Okay, Michael, go get him. And and so Satan suffers a humiliating defeat because Jesus didn't just stay on the ground. Even though every demon in hell tried to hold him there, the power of God was with him and he was vindicated and he rose from the grave and he's at the right hand of the Father and he has risen and he has conquered Satan, death and hell. And look at what Colossians 2.15 says. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross in the spiritual realm they all saw this victory they all saw this majestic glorious authority of the king of kings as he destroyed every power of hell and look at what it says we read this twice the great dragon was hurled down he was hurled down do you know what the original Greek is I I, I thought this was interesting He, he was bounced I think that's a good word. I know none of you have ever been to nightclubs, but if you had, there's two guys stand at the door, big guys in suits, bouncers. Any trouble happens, you're out. The bouncers sort you out. You're kicked out and you're not allowed back in. And what normally happens when somebody's kicked out? They get mad. First of all, they get mad at the bouncers and then they look at the size of the bouncers and then they just get mad at everybody. Satan has been bounced. He has been kicked out. He has been exited through the front door and he's not welcome back. That's good news for heaven. Not so much good news for us, however. Look at verse 12 right now anyway. Therefore rejoice you heavens and you who dwell in them. (laughs) But woe to the earth and the sea. Because the devil has gone down to you. He has filled with fury and he knows his time is short. Satan is defeated, but he hasn't yet been destroyed. Satan has been kicked out of heaven. It seemed that before this, that Satan had access to the throne of God. I didn't read a slide, but I had one a little earlier where Satan comes to accuse Job. 
before the throne of God. It seemed that there was a point where Satan could actually come and accuse and come right into the third heaven and accuse God's people and, 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 and have access to the throne of God. But God one day said, I've had enough and has bounced him out. And he has been defeated, but he's not yet been destroyed. He can't get directly at God anymore. He has been defeated decisively by the cross. The lamb is victorious. Imagine not a lamb defeating a dragon. So then why is life so bad? That's what they'd have been asking. If he has been bounced, why are we suffering so much? Why is there so much pain in the world? Why is there so much persecution? Why is there so much heartache? Why did my friend Graham, who I talked about a few weeks ago, why did he die yesterday and go to be with Jesus? Okay, same age as me, four daughters, or three daughters, lovely wife, loved the Lord with all his heart. Why does that stuff happen if Satan has been so defeated? Why do we suffer pain? Why do we suffer depression? Why do we struggle so much? Well, it tells us that although Satan has been defeated, he hasn't yet been destroyed. The outcome is settled. The victory is won. It just hasn't yet been completely enforced. Look at what it says. Woe to the earth and sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. He knows his time is short. We see that throughout Revelation. That the enemy knows his time is short. Do you ever see a boxer in a fight who's losing and they just they know they're going to get beaten but they just start swinging at anything and anything when they're against the ropes? That's kind of what's going on here. Satan knows he's defeated. He knows he's going to be destroyed. And in the meantime between his defeat and his destruction he has one goal and that is to take as many people with him as possible and so he's on this desperate rampage and so suffering and pain and persecution and sickness and all of that they're not a sign of Satan's victory I want to tell you they're actually a realization of his defeat so what's his strategy what's his tactics what's the enemy's tactics for your life I love Watching Conor McGregor fight, the notorious. And, and, and I love watching good boxing matches. And what do they do? What do, what do fighters do before a, a big championship bout? They study their opponent, don't they? They watch video after video of their opponent. They want to see where their strengths are. They want to see where their weak spots are. They want to see that what their strategy is in fighting so that when they come out to fight, they know that, that they have the advantage because they know how their enemy fights. We see it in football as well, don't we? Managers and coaches watch the opposing teams to see what their, 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 their game plays are and, and how they do things so that when they go out, they know, that, you know their set pieces, how, how, how they play. And it's exactly the same for us as Christians. As the church of Jesus, we have an enemy who is out to destroy us. And therefore, if we're going to win, we need to understand his strategies and his tactics. And here's number one of three, and then I'll finish. He goes after God's people. Verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. What this is telling us is this, 
Because Satan no longer has direct access to God himself, he takes out all his anger on the people of God, the children of God, the sons and daughters of God. And that happens to be you and me if you're a follower of Christ. Satan's main strategy here on earth is to attack God's people and to destroy the church. That's why every work of God in your life will be contested and resisted. Have you ever noticed that? When you try to press forward in Christ, when you try to move forward, when you try to devote more, when you try to give more, when you try to commit more, it's resisted and contested. You decide you're going to tithe for the first time and a week later you get a bill through the post that you weren't expecting. That's the work of God being contested and resisted. You decide you're going to remain pure, you're going to keep your relationships honourable, and then you get a text message from that guy you dated two years ago saying, hey, what are you up to? And you've just like suddenly all those emotions, but suddenly you're like in turmoil because I'm trying to remain pure, I'm trying to live my life right, but this guy seems to have some sort of control over me, and I don't know what to do. Do I text him? And it happens to be 11.30 on a Saturday night, and I've been lonely, and the only thing I've been doing tonight is watching Strictly and the X Factor, and I just want a little company. I've never been there, obviously. I mean, that sounds nothing like experience. Um, But every work of God in your life will be resisted and contested. Verse 17 says the same thing. The dragon was enraged at the woman. Remember that the woman's God's people and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. That's you. Those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Satan's strategy is to go after Christians. It's to destroy anyone who's on God's side. Don't we see the same in gangster movies and terrorists? That if they can't get to the the kingpin, if they can't get to the top dog, what do they do? They go after the family. I love some of those things on Netflix about El Chapo and and, uh, Narcos, and I know you shouldn't watch them, but... I'm just trying to learn what the world watches so I can evangelize. You know, I, do, I kill you when I cut off your skin. Uh, no, um, so I talked to him at home. Uh, but uh, my wife was like, have you been watching Narcos again? I'm like, yes, I kill you tonight if my dinner is cold. Um, but, but that's what happens. They, they normally can't get to the kingpin. They can't get to the, you know, the, the boss. So what do they do? They attack the family. They go for those they love. And Satan can't get to God, so what does he do? He goes after those who God loves. He goes after his children. He goes after his sons and his daughters. I hate to kill your Sunday buzz, but if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then Satan is out to get you. He's out to destroy you. He's out to destroy your church. In John 10, Jesus described him as a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his three main goals in your life. He wants to steal, what God has put in your life. He wants to kill your future and he wants to destroy what God has for you. He wants to steal, he wants to kill, and he wants to destroy. First Peter 5, 8 says, your enemy prowls like a roaring lion. He's looking for someone to devour. He's out there and he's going, who can I attack? The devil is not some little figure with a pitchfork and horns, some little red person just, you know. He is a real spiritual being who has one mission, and that is to destroy you. The devil wants to destroy your marriage if if you're a Christian marriage. 
He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your relationships. He wants to destroy your church. He wants to destroy your family. He wants to destroy your witness. He wants to destroy your purity. You're constantly living in a bottle whether you like it or not. You know, we have this image, and I get it, where a lot of the time we'll say, you know, the church is like a hospital where broken people come and be bandaged up and healed. And and I get that. I think that's a nice image. I don't think it's a full picture. The church is like an army with an infirmary. Yes, we do have a place for those who are wounded. And if you're in the battle, you will get wounded. But the job of an infirmary in the army is not to keep you there forever. It's to patch you up, get you healed, and send you back out. And that's what we want to be as a church. We don't want to be a church who just sit around lamenting about our wounds and discussing how badly we've been attacked. We want to be a church that are, 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 are healing people, who are seeing people restored, who are seeing people come back to life, and who are sent out to make a difference in the world around them. Tozer said this, A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite writers and preachers of all time, said this, the Christian life is, not a, is a battleground, not a playground. We're here to fight, not to frolic. But we prefer not to think about that stuff. Let's be honest. We prefer to think about my best life now. You know, prosperity, provision, all of, you know, all of heaven now. We prefer to think about all the nice stuff. And all of that stuff is true, but it is just not the whole story because reality tells us that life is hard. If you're a child of God, you are a target for the enemy. And so we've seen that he goes after you. He goes after God's people. Secondly, how does he do it? Shame and guilt. Look at verse 10. For the, accusers of our, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. So Satan is the tempter. The Bible says that very clearly. That he is the author of temptation. So he draws you with temptation. He lures you with temptation. He puts things in front of your eyes and tempts you with them. And you know what he does then? If you give in, he accuses you. He starts to whisper in your ear, how could you do that? You're such a failure. Like really? You call yourself a Christian and you behaved like that? Like what were you doing last night? You're in church this morning. I saw what you were up to at half eleven last night. I saw what you were looking at. You're raising your hand this morning. You were clicking a mouse last night. Like, what are you doing? Who do you think you are? Like, you're here and you call yourself a Christian? I know how you spoke to that person in work this week. I know how bad a witness you were. I know how you let them get to you. And I know, yes, you're going to say, well, they were really annoying and they've had it coming. But really? Like, you call yourself a Christian and you behaved like that? How could God ever use somebody like you? You, you, like you, you? You've been divorced. You probably did everything wrong. Like, like, really, it was probably your fault. Like, how could anyone ever love you? How could God ever use you? You've been, you, you, you're, 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 you're undergoing abuse at home. You probably deserve it. That's what he whispers. He accuses you. I got an email this week. I'm writing a book at the minute and 
I'm halfway through it, 40 chapters in 40 days. Ridiculously stupid of me. Um, but I got an email this week, which, which just moved me profoundly from somebody who said that, that their sister has been in an abusive relationship for 12 years. And her self-esteem has become so battered and so degraded that she feels she deserves that, that she doesn't deserve better. And her dad and her sister sat down with her and read two chapters of my book and the next day she was going to walk away and go to women's aid and start to get help. Like that moved me deeply. But she, over 12 years, had had that whisper in her ear. You don't deserve any better. You deserve abuse. This is all you're worth. Nobody else would love you any more. And that's what he does. He accuses us. When we sin, he tells us we're no good. Believe me, up here, I can tell you I experience this. Yes, there is nothing wrong with having humility. We are called to have humility. We're called to have a right view of ourselves. But there's a difference between humility and being crushed by accusation. Satan goal is to condemn you. The Holy Spirit's goal is always to convict you. Satan's goal is to condemn you so that you're paralyzed and unproductive and passive and you don't do anything for the kingdom. God's goal is to convict you, to bring you to repentance and send you out to change the world. And I see so many Christians who are paralyzed by their past who are brought down by their condemnation and who feel so worthless and who are more focused about what Satan says about them than what the Bible says about them. And if we could only grasp what our true identity in Christ is. I wrestle with this stuff. I have told you before, I wrestle with insecurity. I wrestle with inferiority. I wrestle with inadequacy. I have this voice saying to me almost every week, who do you think you are, Craig Cooney, standing at the front of that church? I have it, but I have realized that that is not the voice of God. That is the voice of the enemy. And there is another voice in heaven. That's the good thing. There's the accuser. But there's another voice because the Bible says this, that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. If you put up the next slide there, Mal, we're for second John. Yeah, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice. In other words, every time Satan accuses you, Jesus speaks up and goes, actually, yes, he did do that. But let me just say that I died for him. My blood covered that sin. When I hung on the cross, it was paid for, and he's righteous. I am so glad I have an advocate for the Father. I am so glad that I have one who pleads my case before the Father again and again and again. One who speaks up in my defense and declares the truth of who I am in Christ, not the lies that the enemy tells me, because he is a liar. The Bible says that, that he's a liar and the father of lies, John 8, 44. You know, the word for the devil in Greek is diabolos, which means slanderer or false accuser. Have you ever had anyone accuse you or say false things about you, it is not nice. That's the, that's the enemy's job. His native language is lies and accusation. So when he whispers in your ear, what do you think you are? <laughs> you can't be a Christian. You'll never make it. 
we realize that actually what he is saying, some of it is true, but there's a greater truth, and that is what Christ has done for us. That is the accomplishment of Christ. Because look at what it says in verse 11. They triumphed over him. How? By being good people? No. By positive mental attitude? No. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. I love it says we triumphed over him, not even Jesus. We triumphed over him, why? By pleading the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. By the blood of the Lamb, by the sacrificial death on the cross 2,000 years ago, where Jesus took all my sin, all my guilt, all my shame. Every single sin, past, present, and future came upon Jesus on the cross. That's the blood of the Lamb. The word of my testimony is my life. Yes, Jesus took it all. Yes, I don't have to live right, but I, I, I am to live right. I don't live to earn God's favor, but because I have God's favor and forgiveness, I live a different life. And my testimony is the life I live before the world. It is me trying to demonstrate the love of Christ through my actions. And thirdly, we have boldness. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. That's the thing that everybody shrinks from in life death. That's the thing we're most terrified of, death. That's why we exercise. That's the only reason anyone would ever eat salad is because of death. Don't try and tell me it tastes good. It doesn't. That's the only reason anybody would ever be a vegetarian. Don't tell me it's because you love animals. Anyway, I'm going to get into trouble. Well, I'm not because you're too weak to do anything anyway. Um... (laughs) Um, but we're afraid of death we do everything to avoid death we want to be healthy we run the roads like why would you just run on roads not going anywhere and then run home after 10 kilometers because we're trying to extend our life why on earth would we join a gym? I join a gym. I, 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 I'm trying to prolong my life. I'm being really honest, as well as wanting to look good. Um, but I am. I'm, I'm trying to prolong my life. I want to be healthy. I want to have energy. I want to live long. And yet the true follower of Jesus knows that death is not the worst thing that can happen to me. As someone whose good friend died yesterday, I want to say that death is not the worst thing that could happen. It is death without Jesus is the worst thing that can happen. Death without the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. Death without eternity with Christ. Death with a hopeless eternity and a hopeless future. That is the worst thing that can happen. And so as God's people, we know that. And so we face death with boldness and courage. Yes, it's hard. Yes, we grieve. Yes, my heart breaks for Louise and the three girls. But we know that death is not the end. It is not a full stop. It is a comma. It is a pause where we pass from this life to the next, to the place that God has prepared for us. And so we do face death. And we face it and we grieve and there's nothing wrong with grieving. There, I, I struggle with those funerals where they over try to play, the, you know, those Christian funerals where they overdo the celebration bit. Because there are some people who are really grieving. Death is hard for those who are left behind. But we see beyond that to a greater reality. 
And that is that death is not final. Because when Christ rose from the death, from the dead, death was defeated. Death was destroyed. Death no longer has the final say. But we have eternal life. Just as Jesus rose, we too will rise. And so my friend Graham, his body may be lifeless. His body may be sitting somewhere in Dublin. But that is just his body. Because the real Graham is with the Lord right now. And I am so confident of that. I don't, you know, you hear people saying, I just hope I make it to heaven. You know what, folks? If you're a believer, stop that language. Stop that wishy-washy, well, I just hope if I... If you're a Christian, you have confidence. You have boldness. You declare in Christ, not because of me, I'm going to heaven. And people will go, how can you be so sure? You go, because of Jesus. Who do you think you are? I don't think I'm anyone, but Jesus is everything. We know that because of what Christ has done, death is not the end. Death was defeated. Death was destroyed. And therefore that impacts how we live today. I'm going to finish up now with the story. I like the story. I was going to share it last week, but I decided to save it for this week. And actually I think it's more appropriate this week. It's a true story. It's not a preacher's story. It's a true story. At the end of the Second World War, in one of the Nazi camps in a remote part of Germany, the Allied soldiers had managed to construct this little makeshift radio. Obviously, the people who had captured them didn't know that they had this. But that this little radio where they could listen to what was going on on the outside. And as they listened to it, they heard that the Allies had won the Second World War. That the Nazis had been defeated. But here's the thing. There had been a communication breakdown and the news didn't reach the Nazi soldiers for three more days. Then one day, the Allies woke up, the Germans had fled and the gates were unlocked. During those three days, when the Allies knew but the Nazis didn't, what do you think it was like for the Allied troops? They still suffered They were still mistreated. Their living conditions were the same. Nothing had changed physically for them. And yet, everything had changed. They had changed because they knew what had happened. They could suffer and smile. They could be mocked and keep their heads up. They could be abused and ignore it because they knew that they were victorious. They knew they would be saved soon. They knew they were on the winning side and it was only a matter of time before they would see that victory and their enemies would see their defeat. And as people living in a fallen, broken, messed up world, life is hard. But we know this isn't all there is. We know there's a reality greater than this ahead. We know that Jesus is coming back. We know that through his death and resurrection, sin and hell and death have been defeated. And we know that we're in the one inside. And so we live in the present from the future. We live in the present from the reality of heaven. We don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. And we know that Jesus Christ has secured everything we need. And he is King of kings and Lord of lords. And we are his children. 
and we are victorious. And therefore, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for you this morning, who can be against you? If God is for your marriage, who can be against it? If you have family problems, if God is for you, who can be against you? If you have health problems, if God is for you, who can be against you? If you have hurt and disappointment, if God is for you, who can be against you? If you're struggling with sin and temptation, if God is for you, who can be against you? If you're feeling persecuted and rejected, if God is for you, who can be against you? If you're discouraged, if God is for you, who can be against you?